Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the March 28th, uh, 2019 QPSC. Just as, as a reminder, uh, our convention is to move, is after roll call, is to move directly to closed session. And closed session is 1157 protected and is used to discuss confidential matters related to the medical staff accreditation or risk management. So if you are not directly related to one of these discussions, we ask you to rejoin us during the open session at approximately 3 p.m. So I don't think that's going to be an issue for the people in the room today. I don't like it. Um, so with that, uh, Madam Clerk. Trustee Banerjee, uh, Trustee Bouquet. Here. Trustee Challenge is not here. Trustee Hernandez. Here. And Trustee Jeff. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to uh, the March 28th, uh, 2019 Open Session QPSC. I'll make note uh, on the mic that uh, Trustee Banerjee, uh, uh, who missed roll call, came like five minutes later into closed session. So with that, um, welcome uh, to all. We will open up with item B, uh, the consent agenda. May I entertain a motion to approve? So moved. Uh, second. <laughs> and uh, I'll open up this for dialogue. Any discussion on item B, Bravo 1, the approval of the minutes? Any concerns about the minutes? Trustees? Nope. No, I'm good. Nah, all good as well. Uh, any discussion regarding item B2, approval of policies and procedures? There are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 system, 4 Highland, 1 Alameda. San Leandro. I do have a question. And uh, sorry, one comment to everyone. We're having some mic issues today, so a little bit closer on the mics, and everyone please speak into the mics. Uh, my question is about um, the policy on cannabis and any um, use of cannabis or marijuana or even medical marijuana on campus. I understand our policy is, of course, that staff need to not have this. However, what about the patient who might be using it uh, a little bit more. I don't think they're on. Dave, is this mic on? Um, sorry. Trustee Hernandez. Okay. Can you? Hello. Here you go. Here. Hello. Oh, that one's on. Okay. So my question again, just uh, I understand the reason for the policy about uh, no marijuana use on campus by, f by our staff and uh, physicians and so forth. What about the patient who might come with already you know, some sort of self-medication or treatment protocol that included that? Are we going to be able to manage that? Is that something that we're going to recognize? And I can imagine that a patient might say, well, that's how I'm controlling my pain, or that's how I'm controlling my anxiety. What are we going to do? Or epilepsy. Yeah. Uh, I can speak to that. Sure. Uh -huh. So uh, is this working? I don't know. They, okay. All right. Well, so unfortunately, you know, federal law still uh, prohibits the use of marijuana, regardless whether if it's you know, recreational or whether if it's uh, medicinal. Unfortunately for us, that puts us in a, you know, very difficult uh, uh, situation, which is, do we comply with what federal law is, or do we follow what, you know, California law, which is Macarusa is the acronym that they're currently using. Macarusa, luckily for us, is that they actually carve out an exception for public entities such as Alameda Health System mm -hmm. that would allow us to, uh, prohibit any of the authorizations provided under the statute. There's one thing that I have to say is that recently, uh, the California legislature enacted SB 305, which will require palliative care uh, entities or hospitals that provide palliative care to allow the use of uh, medicinal or medical marijuana. Mm -hmm. uh, that's still being reviewed by the legislature. We don't know, uh, you know, 
what's going to happen to the extent that California approves it. The one thing that is that there is a provision under the same SB 305, which uh, provides that you know an entity doesn't have to comply as long as you know uh, it is authorized under another law. The question is, does that include federal law or is that limited to California law? Mm -hmm. So I think there's ways by which we can navigate. Uh, I know, you know from the legal standpoint, we have that you know, avenue, but I'm not sure if that necessarily, you know, solves the problem for us, because, you know, based on our populations, I know that, you know, this is something that has come up several times and our mm -hmm. commissions have asked. And again, you know, we're placed in a very difficult position, but luckily for us, we do have the law on, on our side. So, I don't see any of that referenced in the policy, and I would wonder if we need to work on that, because then that becomes an arbitrary decision by each clinician in each case with each patient, and I don't know that we want to do that. I think there has to be some guidance, and it, and it just didn't seem like that was there. So I raise that as a concern. So this uh, has uh, taken a lot of discussion, and uh, we really refer to legal counsel, and then uh, as we stand now, we like to take it case by case. And, and see how we will do now. In case it becomes more ubiquitous, uh, we, we need, and, and we have to abide by the law, we need to create accommodation because, uh, again, you know, most of the time it is smoked and we cannot smoke on campus. Correct. So, uh, so it creates other, and the other part of the point is also our staff who are on medicinal marijuana or our medical staff or medicinal marijuana. Again, you know, as, as we stand today, we refer to our legal counsel and we try to abide by federal, by federal law. Trustees, any further comments on policies and procedures? I, I have a few comments. They, they were, they, I think it's, uh, I, I know how hard our staff works on the policies and procedures. I'll always prelude by that. I think we have some opportunity for greater consistency about the documentation of the policies and procedures. For example, on the marijuana policy, page 20, it notes the MEC, but it doesn't specify which one. Uh, so there's a little bit, bit of variance in each policy has kind of an approval uh, stamp at the bottom, and they're all a little bit different. It's unclear if all the MEC approved or just one. For the medication and therapeutic interchange policy on page 22, it says the system MEC approved. There is no system MEC. We only have three individual MECs. For the medications and prescribing and ordering policies and procedures on page 29, it, it, it looks like it hasn't been approved by the CPC or any MECs on the policy. However, the summary document does show it is. So if you look on that on page 29, it's just blank at MECs and CPCs. On the medication, parental to oral therapeutic interchange policy, there are no, are no approvals noted on that document, although the summary document says that there are. On the medication and warfarin policy, uh, uh, the approvals are in a different place than they are for the other ones. In the outpatient pharmacy discharge, there is no system MEC, but it says system MEC. And on the post-anesthesia discharge, no MEC has signed off on the policy, but in the summary document, it says. So again, I know how hard the staff works. I'm just looking for an opportunity to standardize how each of the forms looks. And, and that would be really helpful, because the summary document helps. But So I guess question to council, can we just make an amendment that uh, that the summary document is in congruence with each of the policies because some of those policies have nothing in them. Is that acceptable? Yes. Okay. Can I, just uh, to clarify, uh, we do not have a system MEC, but we have a system CPC. 
and all these policies have passed by the system, CPC, and then went to the MEC. They won't come to here unless they have been approved by the three respective MECs. Got so, it. So the, uh, we can, uh, we can uh, if I may, uh, suggest that with this language correction, mm -hmm. then we can approve, because all of this have been passed by the MECs. Of course. I'm, I'm just looking at the documentation, because it actually says on page 22, system MEC. Yeah, no, I absolutely, Got it. absolutely correct. Okay. So with that, uh, all in favor of approving the consent agenda? Aye. Aye. Uh, opposed? Abstentions? Motion carries. We move past item B1. Thank you to everybody. Let's move into item C, uh, the chair's report. And this begins on page 67. Uh, in continuing with our, our striving to educate ourselves, our journal club, two journal articles were uh, um, included here. Uh, the first is on patient experience data, the second is on, uh, is on hospital flow. And uh, I wanted to intro up and then uh, offer everyone an opportunity. So I, I chose this first article entitled, entitled Patient Experience Data and Bias, What Ratings Don't Tell Us, uh, for a couple of reasons. First, uh, patient experience data holds a central position in our organization, as in all healthcare organizations in the U.S. Experience, as we know, is one of our six pillars. And four of 22 of our True North metrics, that's 18% of our metrics, are patient experience relevant scores. Because these data are so central to informing us, guiding us, and sustaining us through the future, through pay for performance when it comes, I thought we should take a moment to explore some of the nuance of patient experience data to help us understand both the strengths and the pitfalls of relying on these kind of data. Uh, this article actually comes out of Mayo Scottsdale. Um, the author, Dr. Kenneth Poole, is the director of patient experience at Mayo Scottsdale. He's also a black male, and that's important as he writes. In this article, he recounts his own patient experience scores, and I, and I want to uh, extract from here. He noted that when seeing black patients, he and the only other two black physicians uh, at the Mayo Scottsdale had top box scores of 93.8%. So the, the three African-American males, when seeing African-American patients, had top box scores of 93.8%. He also noted that when seeing white patients, he and the other two black physicians had top box scores of 78.1%. That's a difference of 15.7%. I want to read one paragraph uh, from his article which struck me, uh, and uh, this, is, this is included in that document for all for you to review, so uh, stick with me. So, quote, keep in mind these data are reflective of patients' perception of their care. Whether or not we, as medical providers, agree that perception is legitimate. This time, so he's referring to, he, this is his party line that he always says as the patient experience director whenever, when someone, whenever a doc challenges, man, I don't believe in my patient experience data. That's again his party line, one more time. Keep in mind these data are reflective of patients' perception of their care. Whether or not we as medical providers agree, that perception is legitimate. This time, I'm talking to myself as I just digest another quarter of patient experience scores that fall short of the expectations. I hold for myself as a patient experience leader and physician champion. When aimed internally, the line doesn't seem as convincing. How much do the scores matter when I know I'm being empathetic 
and respectful and delivering high-value care with favorable outcomes. Should there be an asterisk for minority clinicians? What about minority patients? How can I be a leader in this space when I cannot consistently get top-of-class scores? Feelings of deflation and lack of appreciation arise because it seems that no matter what techniques I use, how much empathy I exhibit, and how much extra time I spend with patients, I cannot substantially improve my patient experience scores. That one certainly struck a chord with me as, as a doc. So I wanted to open this up briefly to discussion by anyone in the room on, on, on patient experience scores. This is what we do as part of our journal club. Uh, trustees first. This one really hits home for me because I do so much, um, you know, professionally around inclusion, diversity, and awareness building around unconscious bias. And I would say that this is indeed the narrative of people of color who, or women, uh, or other um, marginalized groups who are going to be seen and treated very differently. And, um, you know, this is a case where someone has evidence of the kind of uh, difference that impacts their career and impacts their professional um, sense of self. So it's very dear to my heart that we're, we're talking about this. One of the things I ask myself all the time is how often we're looking at data at our, in our system based on the perceptions of different ethnic uh, gender, LGBTQ status patients, do we look at that side of the coin? And then when we look at engagement, are we looking at uh, engagement levels by uh, gender, generation, and ethnicity or race? It's a fearful question to ask. I think it's really going to take courage to do that. Um, and it's something that we have to lead by example because other facilities don't do this. This is an experience that I can speak to from my own journey. But if we don't ask these questions, how are we going to know where we stand and where those pockets of opportunity for improving the way we both work with professionals as well as patients uh, rest? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Trustee my, I mean, just to, to your point, um, Trustee Hernandez, I also looked at, uh, what I got out of it really was, um, was the evidence that there's few, very few um, persons of color at this clinic. And if we, the numbers just show, I mean, if there's only 68 out of 1,025 patients that are, being, that are um, black patients that are being seen by African-American or black clinicians, then either there's some bias uh, because there's so few physicians or there's so few patients or uh, so I, uh, that was just my first look at the at the at the data and I'm, I also agree that it, it, it's it is subjective though it does it does concern me that this provider um, can can actually draw conclusions from that. Trustee Energy. Yeah, um, it it was so. Um, you know, affirming in that sense to read it because for the last two, two decades or at least a decade and a half, I've been working more on health equity, so much more on clinical biases and patients and how you treat patients. But I remember when I was a clinician and I would go with a male colleague 
either. <laughs> if I said something, they'd look and make collaborate. Like, do you agree what she said? Or I would go um, with my white colleague, and I was the supervisor, and she was my assistant, and they would immediately assume that I was the junior colleague, and she was so. Uh, you know, so those things happen. Those are implicit, explicit biases you see all of the time. And so, as a clinician, as I see the credentialing, and I see we have a very mixed uh, patient population. But when I see a lot of names of folks from different ethnic uh, groups that you see as your, you know, as your um, seeing um, when we see the reports and things, I wonder how. Uh, you know, folks with a different accent maybe and others are perceived when we do the patient uh, scores and you'd like to think that it was just their clinical acumen and their empathy and their communication and all of that matters, but also uh, everything is, it, it, it does the reality and then there's the patient's perception and that, that's as important, so yeah, very, very good. An another reason I chose this article, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read a quote from here because it actually plays to us. This, has, this, this article actually has Oakland roots. A recent study revealed that black men in Oakland, California were more likely to opt for certain preventative services when they met with a black physician than they were with a non-black mm -hmm. physician. Again, following in what we've said. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it, it hits home. This is Oakland. And actually, the second author on that article was Owen Garrick, which is related, uh, the husband of Dr. Jocelyn Garrick, who is one of our ED physicians here. So uh, this, it, it actually has relevance to who we, to who we are. Um, I, my last comment on this as, we, as, we, as I try to move uh, is that uh, I am I, proud of our organization trying to make attempts for this. Uh, we, we put together uh, a diversity and inclusion uh, what we, a seminar or what have you. I attended yesterday, it was two hours. And, and it's striving to gap these kind of issues that we have. And uh, I, I'm, uh, I, I'm proud that our organization is actually uh, trying to be forward thinking on this. Okay, with that we will move to article number two, the heart of the hospital. Um, this article is, uh, begins on page 70. Uh, I chose this article for two reasons. First, uh, regret. Um, I've been trying to sell the term congestive hospital failure for about five years around here, and I never got around to writing about it. And so this guy beat me uh, from the Mayo again. Uh, second, this is a really, really nice construct to help us all understand the extraordinary complexity of hospital flow. Uh, and the, using the heart uh, uh, as, as an analogy. And like in heart failure, we can systematically address the causes. I think that I put this article as a nice prelude to the acute SBU, which will be coming, and then talking about our transfer center. So any comments on this article? There, it's actually, there's a great diagram for those mm -hmm. who've read it. I hope everyone yeah. has read it, which actually shows the heart, the inflow problems, the pump problems, and the outflow problems. Yeah, and I thought there might be a typo, because there's both, they both say external flow, and I thought one should have been coming Internal. in, you know, or coming yeah. in or something. I saw But I, I liked it a lot, and I thought um, the analogy really does work. Um, throughput in any organization is, it's really tough to manage whether you're building something or managing patients it's always if you're not good at that there's something that's going to break and it's going to you know show up in really unique ways i'm curious when you read this 
where would you place your emphasis or, or anyone who's actually living and breathing the day to day, where would you place your emphasis on looking for opportunities to make the flow better? You know, like any clinician, they need to scale whether this is an output problem, or is it a pump problem, or is it an inflow problem. Mm -hmm. I think we have uh, we have issues across all areas at the pump. Our inflow problem is amazing, our emergency department. We have internal pump problems, getting a patient, uh, getting a patient discharge. Our outflow problem, which would be, do we have anyone to, anywhere to put the patient? Mm -hmm. And, and uh, Luis's team uh, is doing great work on this issue. I'll, I'll humbly ask our CEO to consider this construct for, you, for us as you present to us, because it just makes my consideration Think of it like the heart, you know. This, you know, and then as we dissect the 20 or 30 elements of inflow, pump, or outflow, it maybe it maybe will sink in a little bit more because the, what, when we get our, put our brains around this, it almost seems intractable because there's so many elements. But we can dissect it down mm -hmm. just like we can with heart failure. There's a request that I will make publicly here. I I would love to follow. Um, at some point, whether it's through our retreat process or some other event, um, I'd like to follow a very famous HBR article published many years ago, and it's called Staple Yourself to an Order. And it is for the board to experience what would it be like to be admitted here? What would it be like to show up at the ED needing treatment? And let us just walk through that process to understand all the steps that are taken. I once did that for a, um, I won't say where, but it was a child, uh, children's shelter. And by doing that exercise, I found out that a child saw 11 different people in the course of being admitted. Imagine being a child removed from your home, and now you're going to speak to 11 different adults who are strangers in the first hour or two of coming into the system. That's not okay. So it helps to know how do we actually work and what's the experience like to really understand that firsthand because that would get very much more engaging it, conversations around input output. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Sir, the, the one comment I might make is, you know, the operating room is sort of a microcosm of this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, having been involved in many operating analyses of why it's delayed. You know, this is something that happens everywhere, all the time. You come up with all. Sorry, come up with all these different um, potential reasons why, which you have here. And the real problem ends up being, every time I've been involved in this, any one of them can cause the delay. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's so hard to prevent any one of those things. And all it takes is one thing, and then the whole system mm -hmm. is, yeah. the whole room is delayed for the, the day. And that's the real problem. I mean, you have to have everything work all the time. It has to, to be a symphony. <laughs> yeah, to work. And any one small thing going to be the problem. Agree. We'll certainly focus on all of them, but it doesn't take much. Okay, so everyone uh, speak closer to the mic rather than further. With that, thank you for that discussion. We will close out item C and we'll move into item D, the medical staff reports. Um, as I like to say, dealer's choice. Uh, who would like to go first? Otherwise, we'll head it, head it on down. Dr. Marzouk, Alameda Hospital. Um, thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, Mike, please. Yes. Um, essentially, uh, one thing I'd like to bring to the attention is uh, 
is our specialty coverage. Uh, I think uh, currently, uh, as you may know, particularly for neurology, uh, we essentially have uh, one neurologist uh, who is director of the stroke program and, uh, and uh, essentially uh, she has been running on, uh, on all cylinders uh, for several years uh, as uh, the sole uh, stroke neurologist. Uh, and as alluded to here with uh, uh, physician burnout, wellness, uh, very important and I'm uh, awfully concerned uh, about that as being uh, a setting where we have had to uh, have stroke vision uh, for a week uh, or the, uh, at least 10 days uh, because of, uh, of the fact that we don't have uh, coverage uh, for neurology and stroke uh, and uh, it, uh, if we have a stroke in-house we don't have a stroke uh, uh, a neurologist um, and I am fearful that it's come to an acute level where it's going to impact patient care the community expects uh, a stroke program uh, in, in at Alameda Hospital. And uh, I'm fearful that uh, this is an acute situation where we really need more neurologists, particularly to cover the stroke and to continue to be accredited for uh, our stroke program. Not necessarily a neurologist who can come and see, okay, well, this person has, has uh, uh, ALS or multiple sclerosis or that for those, uh, the, particularly our stroke program. Same thing to an extent uh, with our gastroenterology coverage. Uh, and it's, it's uh, I'm fearful that uh, that uh, the readiness uh, is going to impact patient care. Uh, uh, and uh, cardiology, uh, which I alluded to earlier, uh, we just uh, discovered that one of our main cardiologists is going to be retiring in, uh, in July 1st. Uh, a cardiologist that uh, has been at Alameda. Uh, again, uh, Cardiac services are very, very important uh, at uh, at uh, Alameda Hospital, and uh, and that will be impacted, especially if we don't have a replacement. Uh, those were my, my main concerns. Trustees, any uh, questions for Dr. Marzout's report from Alameda Hospital? Um, yes, I have a question. Uh, well, it's actually. Dr. Marzu, um, the Board of Trustees later, um, when we meet later today, will be approving the Alameda Hospital Stroke Center Program Policy and Procedure and Policy, which establishes the, um, the basic 
outline of what is required for the stroke program operation services, the core stroke team, et cetera. And um, there is internal policy, of course, but I, my question, I guess, to you and to, um, to the administration, it, are we in compliance with the requirements of a stroke center doctor? Or, uh, or are we in compliance with the policy that we're going to consider later today? Yeah, we, we are. Uh, we are in compliance. Uh, what has happened is a neurologist was been covering there for years had an arrangement with a physician <coughs> who uh, uh, can no longer deliver care for some reason at Alameda Hospital. And we learned about this, uh, you know, unfortunately, on the 11th hour. So uh, we are taking all steps to keep in compliance and to make sure that we uh, remain okay. Uh, so the, the team from uh, from Highland is uh, stepped up, and uh, you know we're working on a plan, on a more comprehensive, long-term plan for neurological services and for stroke uh, services. Um, I, I happen to know that Dr. Baden is in the audience, and Dr. Baden, uh, th this has been on her tack list. Dr. Baden, could you, in one or two minutes, uh, give us a little bit of an update? Is that acceptable? Yeah, absolutely. Well, can you, do you mind coming to the mic? Thank you, Dr. Baden. So I can address both neurology and cardiology. So. Um, So for neurology, um, once we learned of um, some of the immediate need for coverage, both our current stroke neurologists here at Highland, Dr. Gaines and Dr. Cahill, were, um, received emergency credentialing at Alameda Hospital so they could provide coverage. So over the last few weeks, Dr. Cahill has been covering uh, both hospitals. Um, and then I, I'm, I'm aware of two weeks in um, May that Dr. Judaway will need to be away from Alameda Hospital. So we've already arranged to cover Alameda Hospital for, with our stroke neurologist during that time frame. Um, and then we're working on sort of a long-term plan to help provide coverage for neurology. But we've, uh, our neurologists here have graciously stepped up to help with coverage. So I think we should be covered in May fully. Um, uh, in regards to cardiology, do, uh, Dr. Hill made us aware that he would be retiring a few months ago, so we have um, launched a full search, um, and we actually have, I think up to this point, 10 candidates um, so far. So we are going to be able to um, uh, uh, allow him to retire at the time which he wishes to. I don't want to say it that way, but he plays to retire in July, and I'm, I'm fairly confident that we'll be able to um, bring in someone new to help staff cardiology at Alameda at that time. In that time frame. Dr. Baden, can you make comments on the state of that communication of, 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 of your knowledge of the working plan to the Alameda uh, medical staff? Yes, I'm happy to communicate. We had communicated to Dr. Hill um, all of this, and so it was my understanding that he was going to communicate that we'd be bringing in candidates. So we already brought one of these candidates over to Alameda Hospital to meet many of the staff members, and we, we're planning on bringing all of the sort of top candidates who make it to that round of interviews to Alameda Hospital so the medical staff can meet those candidates. Um, and I'm happy to figure out if there's a different way we need to facilitate it, but so far it worked pretty well. We brought them over, they met some members of the medical staff. Um, so, it, Dr. Marzuk, if there's any concerns that you have about that process, please let me know. No, not necessarily the process. But and Dr. Bain, on the neurology issue, has that been communicated? Dr. Marzuk, do you feel that that's been communicated to your medical staff, that there is 
coverage from Dr. Cahill and Dr. Gaines? Are you, is your well, staff medical? The, the, the last uh, uh, minute. Uh, at the last minute. Well, we no. learned of the coverage at the last minute, so I think okay. it was communicated when we learned about it. Yes, Dr. Tornabini has been in communication with uh, the medical staff. She does huddle every week with the Department of Medicine, so she might have communicated with Dr. Steve Lowry as Chair of Medicine. In terms of, of coverage, but the actual need for the stroke diversion right. oh, yeah. is, 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 is what I was... Right. I mean that uh, that uh, uh, to to it caused tremendous urgency. Yes, and that's the uh, that's the point I was uh, driving at. Well, so that was I think because of the need for this provider to to take leave somewhat urgently. Right. So well, that, right. So we again. stepped in to help cover as soon as we learned of that. Yeah. Yes. Trustees. So, Dr. Marzouk, as you, as you know, standard work, I ask it one the same thing every time. I, I, I'm going to uh, ask you in a second uh, to rank list your top concerns. I think I heard them. But I, I want to remind you what you said last time at the last month's QPSC. You gave two on your rank list. Your first, uh, and again, rank list, your first concern was the transfer process. And your second concern was cardiology. So I just want to be clear that what I'm hearing is that your primary concern, number one now, is neurology. Is that, is that accurate? Yes. And, and number two, what I heard was GI coverage. Uh, from last time? Or no, from, from, from today. Uh, I'm asking to rank list your, your, uh, your issues of concern. Currently, uh, there's still some hiccups with the transfer process, uh, uh, which are uh, still being worked out. We have, uh, uh, they're working on a... So holding your feet to the fire, what's your number two? Oh, number two <laughs> uh, is... Probably still going to be gastroenterology okay. and uh, it's a radiology. Uh, hopefully, that will that will be number three. Okay, so just so I can for my for my notes, number one, neurology. Number two, GI. Number three is 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 cardiology. cardiology. Uh, hopefully, and, and, and so would that mean transfer center is number four for you? We'll tie. <laughs> but it's a rank list. I'm asking us to prioritize. Yes. Okay. Okay. Got it. Okay. Um, thank you for your report. Okay. Uh, going down the road, Dr. Ingenio, welcome. Uh, this is the San Leandro uh, Medical Staff Report. Thank you. You have the document there in front of you, so the credential and privileges we've discussed, the North metrics, um, uh, or, or they're described. I think the. Uh, the issues that we discussed last time, medical staff, integration, um, we've had some uh, valuable meetings between the, the two medical staff leaderships. Um, and I think we've come to an amicable agreement as to the voting members um, from San Leandro campus and the exact structure of how the departments or divisions, not really there might be departments, will be, um, I think, could be determined locally. We can talk about that more, Kelly. Um, and I, I think, you know, a couple comments that I made, uh, you know, I still have some concerns about the ability of the different divisions there to really, you know, how realistic is it going to be that the community physicians are going to come to a Department of Medicine or Surgery meeting up at Highland? I think it's completely unrealistic. You know, it's a different practice model. You know, the, the community physicians don't have time carved out of their schedule to 
10 meetings off-site. And our meetings tend to be in the evenings um, or during times that are available. So I think that's going to be a challenge, and hopefully we can work through that. Um, but I think so far things are going well. I think we're still on track um, to get where we need to be. Um, there are going to be some revisions to the bylaws. Uh, you know, one concern I've had, and quite frankly, the MEC at San Leandro doesn't really care, is the credentialing of the physicians there, how it's done. I know it's been the trustees' um, desire to have this as seamless a process as possible, and I think that that's appropriate. I think, you know, to be consistent with the bylaws of the current bylaws of, of Highland MEC, there's going to have to be some re-credentialing of the positions, which will involve some work of the positions, um, which personally I'd say would be less trouble um, for the medical staff office and for the physicians involved to not have to do that. And, and realistically, all these positions have been credentialed by the same board, you know, through different MECs, but by the same board. Uh, I don't know if there's a way to do that. Mike has sent out a document saying that uh, you know, to be compliant with the current bylaws, it can be, uh, there needs to be some uh, application process, which may have a, a, a secondary uh, benefit, potentially, of physicians who really aren't interested in being in the medical staff, dropping off the medical staff, and that's not a bad thing, I think. Um, but, um, so that is a concern I have. I think that you could put a paragraph in the new revised bylaws also, allowing this process to happen with one vote by the board, potentially. As long as Mike says that's okay, um, I think that is a possibility, and you know maybe Mr. Penny can comment on that. It's the way it, it's the way it was done, you know, with medical staff. I, and quite frankly, I don't really care. I'm just trying to strive for simplicity here for the existing medical staff, um, and trying to make it uh, as, as less of a problem. And you want to encourage those physicians to stay on staff and practice there, I think, as well. So, so uh, Council Penny and I had a little bit of discussion because there's a little bit of background. I'll, I'll give the mic to him to, to, yeah, to illuminate this. So, yeah, so thanks for sharing that point. But, you know, unfortunately, uh, we're precluded by statute, statutes and regulations for incorporating something in a bylaws that will allow, you know, some of the other providers to essentially just be uh, grandfathered in. So, unfortunately, you know, there's plenty of regulations, including uh, joint commissioners' accreditation standards which precludes us from doing that, so you know, this will not be a legal, uh, feasible legal option for us at this point. Which is fine. I mean, if that's the way it has to be, then you know, the providers will have to fill out some minimal reapplication document. Um, and uh, so, um, but just trying to keep in in uh, in mind the, the desires of the board, um, trying to keep it as seamless as possible. Uh, not to be one of things, the Sapphire Report. You know, I still have concerns about the transition how that will be, as everyone does, uh, and uh, concerns about the day-to-day -day operations, as would be expected. Um, Mr. Fonseca provided us some information about the challenges, the budgetary challenges that will be coming in the years uh, to come. That's all described there. Hopefully there will be some room to get some new fluoroscopy equipment over at the facility. The Blue Cross contract negotiations are still a significant concern by some of the physicians there because um, they can't bring their patients there because there still isn't one, but I understand those negotiations are ongoing. Hopefully that will be resolved. Um, yeah. Emergency department still, uh, Dr. Afzali, the director there, uh, has had some challenges with staffing because of the closing of ED beds. The same problem similar to Highland with a lot of borders 
remaining in the ED at times and not having beds to have adequate throughput of the other patients. Um, I think some of that hopefully will get better once the third floor is reopened after the construction is done, but right now it's still a problem. It was kind of a perfect storm when I talked to him about it with some staffing changes, closing some of these beds right at the flu season in December, and, and that's why they had some not great um, time to be seen and left without being seen statistics, which we track on a monthly basis at our meetings, but hopefully that won't be a persistent problem, but he is certainly tracking that. Um, maybe that would be a reasonable summary for a meeting. Thank you for your report. Trustees, questions for Dr. Ingenio from San Leandro? Well, I just want to thank Dr. Ingenio and San Leandro MEC and everyone at uh, the Highland MEC as well for working together to to come to to um, an understanding and conclusion of the, the he wrote in his report, amicable agreement. <laughs> amicable is always a nice word. <laughs> um, just a comment about the meetings and, you know, scheduling. Is there any possibility that we could use, um, you know, web-based video um, transmission of meetings so that we could let people participate but they don't have to drive up? Could we do that? I mean, certainly that's true. It, it's more of a time. You know, like the MEC meets here Wednesday morning. None of us are, I mean, the, the community positions have carved out time for half a day of a meeting. Mm -hmm. uh, um, we do our MEC from 5 to 8 p.m. on Tuesdays, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a different model. And I totally get that many island physicians want to do a meeting in the evening if they don't have to, if they have the time in their schedule that's set to do that. I don't have that luxury, and, and most of the community positions don't. So the people that choose to be in, in executive, you know, the med exec leadership just make that decision they're going to do this mm -hmm. at other times. So I don't have a solution to that. I certainly don't expect to say, oh, we, have, we need to do the meeting, which is 25 other people here plus, to go to some other location from 5 to 7, but, you know, I, you know, I, don't, I don't know that that's ever really going to work, and it's not fair when there's, you know, a small minority of us down there. So nobody's asking for that. I just... To me, this was going to be the challenge all along, honestly. Um, the, the biggest one to get participation. Um, because you and I know it's realistic. I mean, you've driven down to San Leandro to go to a meeting and pain in the ass, right? <laughs> but frankly, it, no, it is. I mean, it, if you, it disrupts your day. I mean, you know, the time you spend going to a different location is more, more so. Anyway. Well, thank you for that report. Uh, standard work. Uh, I'll always ask uh, presentees to rank list their top concerns, rank list. And I'll remind you, Mike, what you said last time. You gave me two. Number one, the med staff merger. And number two was Sapphire implementation. So as of today, can you give me your new rank list or, or hold it the same? Um, you know, I think it's similar issues. You know, I'm a little concerned about the, the emergency department throughput. That's number one? Yeah, I would, I would almost push that as number one now, and then Sapphire number two. The med staff things, I think, would be number three. Do you feel resourced to navigate those concerns? Yeah, yeah I do. Okay, excellent. Thank you for your report. Trustees, we'll close out him. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll close out now with Dr. Ballard on the Highland Core uh, medical staff presentation. Dr. Ballard, Mike's yours. Um, so we presented our credentials and our policies, which were all 
Um, well, and it sounds like we have some work to do in terms of a template, Dr. Bouquet, mm -hmm. in terms of the final report template for our policies and our procedures that we submit to this level. Yes. Is mm -hmm. that something that you want us to propose? Uh, do you mean the prior discussion we had about... Yeah. Uh, I, I think this standardizing the approval line, the box at the bottom, that's all we're looking for. Mm -hmm. Because okay. each of them actually looks a little bit different. That's I have the staff office could coordinate that? Sure. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, think that's, I think that's pure administrative. Okay. So the, um, the items that uh, we had for discussion, we had quite a robust discussion about several topics that were somewhat new and some were revived from the grave. Um, the first of which, which I think you probably have in your packet, is this topic of the wound seismic report. And I'm really grateful that we're starting to discuss that again because my office is in the wounds. I used to sleep there. I don't anymore unless I heard what the original seismic data was because I sleep here a lot and um, 48 nights out of every year, to be perfectly honest. And that's a lot of potential for the ceiling to fall on me. That being said, I understand that it's somewhat out of our hands and that it's county decisions and funding and other administrative things. Because I know if it was up to, Dr. to Mr. Fonseca, he would not let the ceiling fall on my head. <laughs> <laughs> Most days. <laughs> um, I think it was very refreshing to know that that topic has once again been opened up and that people are serious about trying to move it forward and get that area safer because there's many, many, many offices over there and the people that are in those offices I value very highly uh, and they contribute to our patients more than even my opinion of them. So that's, the, that's probably the, the more positive of the things we talked about. The surge red issue is, is ongoing. I think there's an enormous amount of work being done. I'm not exactly sure, being a fly on the wall for the process, that it's all coordinated work. Um, and I'm not quite sure how to get it coordinated. I'm still working on it. But it is, it, there, there's a lot of attention to it, and usually when there's that much attention, we can move things forward somewhat, even though it's, it feels like pushing a boulder up a mountain right now. The true growth metrics, um, once again, we're having the highest patient satisfaction scores we've seen, and I attribute that solely to the amazing team that Dr. Hussein's put together, and I'm not saying that because he gave me his microphone. <laughs> But in terms of an example of teamwork in this hospital, and I, I said this to him and of his, the people on his team, I have to commend them because they're one of the true teams that I've seen come together and really take on monumental tasks in a successful way, and they just keep going. And I, I would have quit by now, and they just keep going. So there's got to be some resilience built into that team from the leadership and the, the people on the team. Sapphire has everybody terrified, but it's coming, and as all Highland things that come down the road, we manage to get through it much more heroically than we think we will in the end. 
And in terms of the, the core uh, Highland, I guess it's just the core, the, the core MEC and the San Leandro MEC, we've reached an amicable solution. And the bylaws are currently being revised. There's on target to go out for an MEC vote tomorrow. And within a week, we'll send it to the entire medical staff for a vote. For our bylaws, we have to have it in the medical staff vote round for 30 days. So that will allow us to stay on the larger calendar schedule to accomplish all the things we need to do from an acceptance standpoint by the time we have to have the paperwork pushed through and present to you guys. So that's encouraging that we are actually on schedule for something. You have a copy of that? No. They're, they're currently being revised by our lawyer. So the, I think the, the biggest thing that popped up over the last four weeks has been something that I, I have to mention is ironic because of one of the articles that you chose, Dr. Bouquet, that um, used the image of a cardiac machine to represent a hospital. And I would say that it's becoming, as a systems analyst, which is what I was originally trained to be, it's becoming more and more obvious to me that our cardiac machine probably has something like Sarkin. <laughs> <laughs> and, and for those of you who aren't doctors, Sarkin is an infiltrative disease. And it undermines the ability of the heart to really function in the way it should. And people can ultimately die from it. And I use that because what I've noticed, we have two entities or, or two things that are happening on a daily basis and on a weekly basis and on a monthly basis here. But I think if we were to do a root cause analysis for why we haven't been able to be any more successful than we have, in some larger rounds, it's because of these two things. The first of which, there is an enormous amount of animosity and distrust amongst the physicians in this hospital towards the executives. To the point where there is language of, there's military language that's used sometimes, and I find it very disturbing. I actually myself, started using military language, and I'm a pacifist who lives in Berkeley, and that should never happen. <laughs> At one point in the recent past, I said, you know, sometimes you got to lose the battle to win the war. And I stopped, and I went, who said that? And it's because I am in circles, and I hear conversations, and it's this war mentality, this us and war mentality. And I think that that's really undermining our ability to have success in this hospital and in this system. That as long as there's an us and them mentality between the physician leadership and the executives, we are not going to move forward and we are not going to be able to accomplish the things we want to accomplish. Likewise, there is some disconnect between the executives and the physician leadership. In the last three months, I have heard an executive harshly recommend a physician leader in a public setting, and that should never happen. And it was at a time when emotions were running high and people were stressed, and I totally get that because I watch people die and I get stressed about it and sometimes I growl. 
when it's happening. Nobody was dying in that meeting. The people were stressed. And like, I don't think the physicians need to have a war mentality towards the executives. I think the executives need to really think about how they interact with the physician leadership. Because we are not going to be able to accomplish the things that all of us want to accomplish if we don't figure out another way to interact with each other. So my items one, two, and three are that. Thank you for that candor, Dr. Blard. Mm -hmm. Trustees, comments? So uh, Dr. Ballard already got ahead of me, as, as, as she, she, she can often do. Uh, so she, at last time, uh, Dr. Ballard uh, ranked list number one, problem surge red, number two, the, the med staff merger, number three, provider wellness. And what I'm hearing from Dr. Ballard, just to, if, she'll, if she'll confirm or refute that her items, number one, number two, number three, are relationship, relationship, and relationship. Is that accurate, Dr. Ballard? Exactly. Okay. Trustees, any comments? Well, it's very much a concern. Um, and I think uh, one of the things that, you know, I've been able to observe is just our ongoing discussions about how to bring the physicians under one uh, organization. And, and I can feel all of those um, challenges that you've raised. And I think that um, my hope is that through that process that there will be more candid discussions about how to bridge these um, differences and different opinions and different perspectives because we are all in this together whether uh, we realize it or not every single person in this room and beyond has to be unified around our mission so i'm very committed to this and I'll do the best that I can to advocate for that in every conversation that I have. Thank you for bringing it up, though. Yes, agreed. Thank you for your courage, Dr. Ballard, and not to go with bellicose language, but I sometimes use it. <laughs> you go to war with the army you got. This is our army, and let's uh, let's let's try to work through your number one, two, and three, because I think that's that's the the magic stuff. So, with that, uh, we close out item D, the medical staff reports. Thank you, chiefs of staff. Thank you very much for that. We move into item E, uh, the acute SBU report. Um, Mr. Fonseca, I think you have a great team. I don't know if you're taking the lead on this or your team is going to be taking the lead on this, on the acute SBU report. Uh, trustees, beginning on page 133. Absolutely, well, I, I thank you for that. Uh, and I will certainly be turning this over to my team. Wonderful. Someone asked me how to great team. this way. Mm -hmm. uh, but first and foremost, before we start, I'd like to go ahead and also make a formal introduction. And that is our CAO, CNE, that we've been anxiously waiting for, uh, joined us. Uh, she's on her second week of work, or day number nine. Uh, so after day five, that well, the honeymoon was over, so now she's just been uh, straightforward. But uh, Janet McCannis, uh, who, who joined us uh, last week on Monday, we're very glad to have her. With that, I'd like to ask them to come up this way so they can go ahead and provide updates and answer questions and specifically really focus on some of the work that we've been talking about as it relates to to throughput and, and, and the efforts that are underway with that, which I know that uh, Teresa, uh, Lori, and Monica all work very closely together as they're managing uh, our patient population across all three sites. And so we have 
So as we have, we have a lot of activities going on, as Dr. Ballard mentioned, we have great engagement from multiple stakeholders. And, and as, as we see in the diagram here, there's, there's multiple components that contribute to this whole process. And uh, a lot of it is, you know, as we normally look at, at, at problems or issues, we, we look at, is it people, process, or technology? In this particular case, it's all three. And we're dealing with all those, and we're putting processes and mechanisms in place to make sure that we can not just address the issue temporarily, but really have a, a measurable and sustained improvement long term. And so that's kind of the work that they've been, they've been leading uh, over the last several months. I mean, throughput has been all-consuming uh, at, at the facility level, uh, let alone all of the other work that, that uh, these wonderful leaders are doing at their sites, continuing the effort around EPIC and all of our other work. But with that, I'd like to turn it over to the team and, and have those updates provided. Actually, one moment, if you if you don't mind. Thank you, Luis, for that introduction. So uh, one more time for our QPSC. Welcome to our, our, our three VPs of patient care services. I've heard things like uh, three musketeers, and, and I've heard great things about them. Teresa Cooper, uh, Highland, Lori Foyle, San Leandro, Veronica Shelton uh, from Alameda Hospital. So ladies, wonderful, uh, welcome to you. A uh, reminder of principle as you uh, continue to present to the QPSC, we strive to have a 25% presentation, 75% dialogue in here. I, I want everyone and going forward to sort of presume that the QPSC has done their, their homework and read the packet, which they have. It was actually quite an excellent write-up. Uh, so use use your microphone to, to, to highlight for us the, the items. And then as a little bit of a fast forward, as you see, I, I kind of believe in standard work. I'm going to ask you at this pres at the end of your presentation to rank list your top concerns. And then I'm going to ask you if you think you feel resourced to navigate those concerns. This has a standard work for everyone who presents. Is that acceptable? Sure. We have 20 minutes on the, on the mic, and maybe we have a little bit of wiggle after that if need be. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. OK. Let's start. I think that 20 minutes might be a little more than we need. No. Okay. Um, so I think one of the key things that we as a team up here would like to point out to start with is that this is the first time in over 12 months, and I know Tinder is looking at me right now, that we have received as a system as well as at each site to uh, rate the hospital 9 out of 10 being in the green. And so um, it's taken a while to get there, and I feel like there's been a lot of work going into this and that finally we've at least seen some movement and it seems like it's been drastic movement over um, this period and so for us three that was like one of the little wins we finally had because we feel like every day we're coming in and it's a lot of work a lot of work but when we see results from it it really helps out um, so for San Leandro in particular uh, we did uh, drop down a little bit in our hospital acquired harms index for 1,000, but for us it just takes one case and, and it changes our color. But yeah, year to date, we still remain in the green. So we're positive on that note that we'll have improvement for the rest of the remainder of the year to keep us on target um, in that area. So the only um, follow-up we have is that, and then of course our observed and expected length of stay. It's a little bit more than we'd like to see, but it's not too far off. Um, I want to contribute a lot of our work at San Leandro to collaboration. Uh, that we've had among the teams of working with uh, groups, whether it be the physician groups, care management group, uh, and just the nursing team. Uh, we've started a pilot over there. We're doing the no-pass zone. 
So it has to do with responsiveness to patient call lights, and we have in-serviced uh, groups such as EBS, um, lab, pharmacy, everyone, that if you're up on the unit and you see a call light, and they've been uh, directed as to what's within their scope and not within their scope, but they can at least go in, address the patient's immediate need. It could be something as simple as, I just can't get my insure bottle open, and they can help the patient with that, versus if they need something more like medication, they'll get the nurse, but at least the patient's being heard quickly and more uh, timely. So that's one thing that we're very excited about over there, as well as the gift, which everyone has been taught now, the gift plan, and it seems to be going really well. So we're starting to see some of that positive feedback over in our area, and we're very excited for it. Can we go next? So Alameda, uh, for our dashboard, um, our, our length of stay is within... Trustees, this is on page 142. Okay, I'm sorry. No, no, you're doing great. We're supposed to follow along. Oh, all right. Okay. Okay. So, um, our length of stays with, with, within Target, are, um, where we have had concerns and working on is our 30-day readmits, active involvement with our care management team, uh, who are going out and... Um, educating and relating to SNFs as far as uh, these patients coming back into the hospital, what we can do to mitigate that, and also working on heart failure, readmission, having that be a focus in these teams and working on strategies to decrease those admits. Our hospital acquired harm index, um, we had one case and it was uh, deemed appropriate care. And then as Lori was talking about our HCAP scores, especially, especially rating the hospital 9 or 10, um, our year to date at Alameda is down a little bit. Um, we're working on the key drivers of nurse, nursing courtesy, physician courtesy. And with that, what I've started this last month is bringing to all medical committees the, uh, the patient comments. So um, they can look at um, the positive, mixed, and the negative comments by the patients. And they've uh, been collaborating and working on strategies to mitigate that. Thank you, trustees. Um, I had a question about the gift program. Could someone just remind us a little bit of what that is again and how it's working? Yeah, um, I'd be happy to. So the gift thing is actually part of um, Olivia, you know Olivia Crino. She is helping to implement this and it's something that she's kind of created. We used to do ADIT and it was just such a long thing and people were trying to memorize all of these things, but we knew it still needed to have meaning. So we're now teaching to gift, which means I'm going to greet the patient, or the bit, I'm talking to the family, I'm still going to come in, I'm going to greet, I'm going to introduce myself, so that's GI, and the F is for, what am I there for, what, what is it that I'm going to be taking care of while I'm in the uh, room with the family or the patient, and then the end is always thinking when as you're walking out. So that's what we're implementing to make it kind of a little easier to remember, standardize, and to make people more familiar with it. So it's a term created here within the AHS by AHS employee and it's something that we're rolling out to make it easy for everyone to know and it's not just nursing it's anyone that would go in the room would want to know a gift and they have it a badge that is made and all kinds of stuff to make sure that they they have it they've made posters that they've hung up and things throughout the facility Video is coming. Oh, yes, and the video is coming. That's I'm curious, uh, just an observation uh, in other environments where those kinds of techniques are used and so on, is there any way for the patient to acknowledge when they feel that they've been um, given exceptional service, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, yes. 
there's little stickers sometimes that you can get from the actual employee that you've done something great. Do, so tell us about that. <laughs> so for that, we do have the Daisy Award where we have, um, in, I know at San Marino in particular, and I think at Almodor, mm -hmm. we have different uh, forms that they can fill out and they can send in. It can be the patient or the family, and it talks about something that uh, somebody has done exceptionally well above and beyond. So we do get a lot of those, but those will acknowledge the people for something that they really did well. Um, but what we're looking for specifically for that award is not just the nurse who has done an exceptional job at their job, because we all should be doing that, but it's more about any employee who has gone above and beyond and taken that extra step to have made a difference in that patient or family's uh, care that they received and their perception of their visit and went above a normal duty of your job. A normal task. Thank you. Not that we can't do better, though. Um, so I'll just uh, touch on the um, expected average length of state, which Highland unfortunately brought up the, the, all the numbers. Um, and, you know, it's a lot to do with throughput. It's a lot Page 140s, trustees. Yeah, our surge situation. Um, there's a lot going on with it. Um, I would respectfully disagree with your diagnosis, Dr. Blair. I think we have a little mitral valve prolapse. <laughs> Um, I think, you know, this article really rang true. You could have probably written it here. Um, we have social workers that are working tirelessly, care management. Um, we have transfers now, which are working great. Um, I think that there was a quote that I really liked. It said, um, a hospital that works against itself is like an, an arrhythmic heart. That used to be us. We're not siloed anymore. We have a lot um, of synchronicity. Um, I'm lucky to work with Sheila. Um, her group is amazing. We're um, pairing together. And I can guarantee you that we are now, um, <coughs> sorry, I have to try to throw it today. Um, we're monitoring the hospital's vital signs, and we're doing those EKGs daily. So um, I think one thing that EPIC will help with is the um, Byzantine um, protocols we have. You know, we have, we do a lot of administrative stuff. We need to stop doing that. So I think we're getting better. I live and breathe it, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot going on Absolutely. every day. Um, it doesn't help um, when the ED is suffering. Um, they really are with you know, 14 to 40 admits. Um, but the floors are working tirelessly, um, the ICU, everyone. So I think it will come together eventually. Um, we have some um, long, a long way to go, but I think we've made tremendous strides. Agree. Trustees? Okay. I would add. Uh, I would add. I would add just a couple of things. You have to I'll just add that uh, again, as we several months ago when we decided to reevaluate our structure uh, as a result of you know just some of the changes that we had in personnel and, and transitions and things of that nature. Uh, I am so pleased to, to share that not, not only will we now have our CAO CNE in place, who is very quickly coming up to speed and spending a lot of time with uh, the team. Uh, over the last several months, uh, Teresa, Ronick, and Lori have just done a phenomenal job of, of really opening that line of communications that I would say really didn't exist in the past. In the past, the Blue Hospitals functioned very independently. And uh, the, the leadership in each site was focused on their, dealing with their issues at their site. And it is very clear and it's evident that uh, today that is not the case. You know, uh, they, they communicate on a, on a daily basis, uh, if not multiple times a day, supporting one another, understanding what the challenges are, 
making decisions that may impact their facility but helps the other. And so those are, those are decisions that they're making on a regular basis. And they're able to communicate and have that dialogue. And so I know that Lori is, is really focusing and working on some of those issues that we're having in San Leandro as it relates to the ED throughput as well. There are times when we uh, do get the influx of patients and we get a little bit backed up. Uh, the fact that we have some beds that are closed down uh, currently and, and some beds that are uh, at times affected by some of the work that's <laughs> happening on the upper floors um, makes, makes things a little bit more challenging. But even with all that, you know, she's constantly looking for ways to continue to help Highland and say, hey, how can we look at offering at least, even if it's just one bed. Uh, but that discussion, that dialogue, that communication really helps. And so, you know, Teresa, I, I can't say enough about the fact that seven days a week, 24 hours a day, she's been dealing with the patient throughput. And that's not sustainable. And, and we want to make sure that we take care of her as much as we're taking care of everybody else. And there's a tremendous amount of work going on in, in the steering committee. Our focus continues to be on our multidisciplinary rounds. A lot of it is just improving our communication between all the different disciplines and providers. Um, and that's coming along, that's, that's happening in all, in all of our, our, our floors. Uh, we've also put together a report uh, that we've continued to, to massage and fine tune as we learn from that report to, to help us focus and leverage one single source of truth. So now we have one document that we're saying, this is the document that we're using, this is going to guide all of our conversations and it informs these discussions of all these different meetings and uh, you know rounds that are happening to help facilitate the movement of the patients. I've also noticed that uh, uh, through their efforts and through their work uh, as they're working and cascading this and really setting the expectation and helping support and show up their teams at the unit level, I now see emails from the staff proactively addressing or identifying opportunities for continued movement. That didn't happen before. So I mean, although it's still very, you know, involved and we still have some work to do, and it's very stressful, especially for the ED staff. The ED is the one that's feeling kind of the brunt of a lot of this. But so are the floors. The floors are trying to manage, and they feel that pressure. And we're working to push and pull from both sides. Um, and, and although it is stressful, and, and there are those concerns, I do feel that there is movement. And we're starting to see some things come together. And it's, it's, it's kind of one of those things. It's kind of like my golf game, you know? It, on any given day, but my driver is working great, but nothing else works. And then other days, my part is working great, but nothing else works. I'm looking forward to the day when all of it will come together and I'll have the best game possible. And that's what we're dealing with here, that we're really waiting for some of these activities to all just come together. And once we connect and align all those dots, we're going to start seeing some great movement. But again, the engagement from our care management team, the engagement from our providers, our, our physicians, our hospitalists, you know, our, our, our nursing team, it, it's just, I, I just want to thank the team here for their commitment, their relentless focus, and the continuous improvement that we're continuing to see. Thank you for that, Luis. Something said about uh, getting the right people on the bus and then getting Absolutely. those people in the right seats. That's so right. congratulations to you on your team. And so coming down the row, Miss um, Shelton, we'll start off with you at Alameda Hospital. Can you rank list your top concerns in, in, in order, please? 
told you the questions were coming. <laughs> <laughs> Top concern would be CNA negotiations. CNA is number one. Mm -hmm. This is at Alameda Hospital, folks. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, ma'am. Number, number two, Sapphire. Got it. And three would be patient experience. Got it. Ms. Shelton, do you feel uh, resourced to navigate those top three? Uh, yes. Wonderful. Thank you for your presentation. Uh, Ms. Foyle, uh, your, your, your rank list of top concerns at St. Andrew Hospital. Well, it probably won't differ too much, um, but I also, as you know, have seen negotiations right now, and that is a, a huge concern for us. Over the number next, one. Yep, over the next few months, that's going to be my number one okay. thing to overcome. The second one is going to be the implementation as well for um, Sapphire, because we need to make sure we get all of our resources in place to make that implementation happen. And um, I know it's challenging for all teams, not just us in nursing and not just our facility. And then I think my third one is just uh, quality and safety improvement processes that need to happen over at San Leandro and that I'm, you know, holding so many areas. We, it's, we've got to divide and conquer here and how we're going to do that. Yes, ma'am. Do you feel resourced to navigate those concerns? Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you for your report. Uh, Ms. Cooper, um, closing out with you, uh, if you'll tell us your rate list, your top concerns. Um, I would say staff burnout would be my first. Um, that's from nurses to providers to everyone. Um, Surge and then Epic um, will be the last. Do you feel resourced to navigate those challenges? I do, actually. Wonderful. I'm working on those, yeah. Thank you for your wonderful presentation. Thank you. But if you do have like 10 more bodies or something, give us just that. You know, the, uh, as I, I've said in the, uh, that, that code word is, do you feel resourced? That's your opportunity to ask for stuff. Yeah. So for I next think time, we have what we need. Thank you for that excellent presentation. With that, we will close out. Uh, sorry, did you have something? Uh, uh, I, I just wanted to say thank you so much. And, you know, we wanted to have the nurse leadership. We've been hearing about it for some time. This is such a big year, as Dr. Bart. All of us know that the administration and the clinical staff, the nurse, the physicians, all of us have to be all in the same direction. There are just so many big changes coming. So mm -hmm. thank you for being, uh, for doing what you're doing and through the negotiations, through the surge and all of that. So, um, and know that uh, you know, you have our support. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. With that, we'll close out item E and we'll move into item F. This is uh, one of our special reports. We've uh, previously requested discussion from the Transfer Center. This is a, again, remember, we have some non-standing reports, so this is one of those. So I believe Dr. Tornadani is giving this. Uh, so, please, please, uh, if you guys will come to the mic, introduce yourselves, and um, uh, uh, committee, uh, this uh, presentation begins on page 151 of the packet, 151, and welcome, if you guys will introduce yourself at the microphone, and then lead us in the report. Remember, we try to stick by the principle of 25% uh, presentation, 75% dialogue. You should presume that the QPSC has read the packet, which it, which has some very nice information in it. Oh, okay. Oh, are we using that? We are. I guess we are. Oh, you're right. You can use that. Okay. Uh, good afternoon. I'm Sheila Weiser, uh, Vice President of Care Management, um, the Transfer Center 
actually reports under care management, and I'll be presenting on behalf of Dr. Tony Bini today, who is the um, ACMO and medical director over the transfer center. And I have um, Susan Parabella. She is um, our supervisor and a major contributor to um, the success and expansion of the transfer center. Okay. So Thank you. Give it, okay. Oops. That's the that's a wrong presentation. This is the this is for company B. Keep yeah, keep on keep clicking. It's probably about five, five or six. There we go. Okay. All right. So I will try to um, move rather quickly through the presentation to allow time for questions and questions and answers. Okay. So the um, transfer center um, today, I would like to go over um, just a brief history of the transfer center um, data that we've been tracking over the last year. Um, the impact the transfer center has had and then a quick snapshot of um, the future capabilities with the EPIC implement SAFIRE implementation. Next slide. Mm -hmm. So February 26 um, was the initiation of the transfer center um, and the transfer center um, was um, developed essentially to um, use our acute care resources and provide inner facility transfers as well as transfers outside of AHS. Um, during the first year, we had 15 to 20 patients that were transferred per month from Highland ED to Alameda and San Leandro. And over the past two years, um, the transfer center has expanded its scope, um, which includes the hours of operation and the volume of patients that we've been able to transfer. So on this slide is just an overview of um, the current scope. So um, we've worked um, quite hard to expand the hours um, of operation. Initially, we were um, staffed Monday through Friday, uh, one shift um, a day. And we've expanded the transfer center to, to seven days a week. We have two shifts covered, uh, Monday through Friday, and one shift covered uh, Saturday and Sunday. Okay, so the current scope, we do direct transfer um, admissions from Highland, ED, or inpatient, um, Alameda San Leandro, um, inpatient to inpatient acute care transfers, and we transfer between facilities for MRI, which will be launched uh, April of 2019. Um, our transfers um, involving non-AHS facilities include um, inpatient to external, for example, to UCSF um, Stanford, and we continue to bring patients, um, repatriate back, and then we also do non-AHS acute to acute transfers to Highland. Okay, here is a snapshot of um, the data uh, over the last, um, this is between September and February, and as you can see there, with San Leandro, we've had a decline in transfers, but that is primarily related to uh, the, the restructuring of uh, the building and acute rehab. Um, Alameda, we've shown consistent um, um, increase in volume of our transfers to Alameda. And then we have on the second uh, graph there, um, the number of patients that we bring from Alameda and San Leandro to Highland for higher levels of care. Okay, so overall, the transfer, um, the transfer center coordinators, um, this, is, this represents the number of reviews they do on a monthly basis. So they assess many patients in the emergency to look at where uh, a patient can be transferred, as well as um, 
any uh, potential patients that can go to outside facilities. So some of the influences on patient movement. Um, some of the challenges that we've um, that have created our inability to transfer patients includes um, subspecialty services and testing availability um, throughout the system. So Susan, maybe if you can highlight some of our challenges with, with the subspecialties, the, the leading ones that tend to be consistently a problem for us. Yeah, the leading ones for us um, are services around hemonc. Um, some of it uh, is GI, uh, especially when we need urgent services that are not able to be provided within the same day. Um, some of our renal patients, that is also a challenge because we services, again, are required within the same day. I'm not able to transfer patients in a timely enough fashion to procure those services at the accepting campus. Um, sometimes, uh, like for all our trauma patients, None of those are transfer candidates, so if they need services, we, um, they, we're required to keep them within our own campus for at least 24 hours. If they need additional services thereafter and they're still residing in our ED with, given our current surge problems, we will consider them still as transfer candidates. And um, pretty much those are the, the highlights of the subspecialty. There are other ones, pulmonary, there's some other minor ones that always come up. And then it's level of care as well. So if a patient, it's acuity across the board. So that um, does depend on the subspecialty services and that timeline. Mm -hmm. So some additional um, challenges on patient movement include um, the surge day, uh, patient consent. So we do, the patient does have to consent to transfer. Um, we, we had recently some challenges with um, the provider workload. So the hospitals being capped when we had eligible but they could not accept patients. And I know that at Alameda that some of that has been resolved. And then patient acuity, where we have a mismatch, where they may have an available bed, however, the acuity of the patient is not matching the the um, potential for transfer. Have a question? Yes. yes. Trustee John. <coughs> what is surge state? Uh, it would seem like when there's a surge, it would be more important to transfer. So why why would a surge state? How would that impact transfer? And could it reduce the opportunities for transfer? Well, it, it impacts the transfer when um, Alameda or San Leandro um, also is limited for beds because they have patients that need um, from the ED that are being admitted at the same time that we're in a surgeon. So there is where we have challenges. Please continue. Okay. All right. Um, and then we did talk about patient acuity. So some of our performance improvement efforts um, include uh, con we're continuing to work on standard work on um, communication between um, the hospital and physicians regarding bed availability. Um, pre-transfer um, attending at that station, and then evening transfers, um, establishing uh, communication standards and transfer guidelines. Um, most recently, um, with our partners, um, looking at ICU transfers, which we had not done in the past, but we're putting in place uh, guidelines to free up more ICU beds at Highland, and then direct admissions um, clinic to inpatient workflow. So future direction, um, we're looking at a system-wide coordination um, process, so leveraging um, the SAFIRE implementation, um, the module with Grand Central will be able to look at um, actually bed movement across the entire system and leveraging the transfer center and other um, overall workflows 
to facilitate um, transfers, um, beds, bed capacity at all of our sites. And this is just an example of what um, Grand, um, Grand Central will look like. In um, our, We will be adopting the transfer center module um, to facilitate more timely transfers and actually to make it transparent to all that's involved in the process. And then lastly, um, I just want to thank um, our staff, um, Susan, Stephen, Julie. They've done tremendous work um, over the last year uh, with the transfer center expansion and just doing the daily work to work that's involved in communicating with um, our providers and our multiple stakeholders across San Leandro and Alameda. Yes, questions? Thank you for your presentation. Yeah, uh, trustee, trustee Jensen, then okay. Trustee Banerjee. Um, with regard to the, the module and the, the, um, the pre previous slide and um, having a, the app application of the website, would this, would this would the transfers include also the outgoing transfer? Would that be available to be seen? I know that um, if a patient was going to Children's or going to Stanford or going somewhere after being seen in the evening, would they show up here? Or is this just intra? They will. They, the transfer center module is created for all inbound and outbound transfers. So we'll actually have a better method of capturing all transfers across the board, which is very exciting to me because I'm pretty much paper-oriented right now. Yeah. So this is really a, the transfer center module in Sapphire is a new module. It's only been developed within the last year, and it's only been utilized at a very small number of campuses. So um, this is really groundbreaking for us to be able to have this module. And um, I guess for Delvecchio and Luis, could we also capture some revenue from the capture that we're doing of all the transfers and the, the um, I mean, will this give us more data and more information and more timing information for, for billing and for uh, reimbursement? Uh, this, this will serve, this will serve as, as a, I mean, it'll be a tool and it'll be a, a, the traffic control center that will allow us to have greater visibility across all of our sites, understanding what our capacity is, where we have capacity, how we can move within and leverage that capacity at all times. So that's what the tool does. I mean, from a revenue perspective, absolutely. I mean, if, if, if we're not, if we're not uh, you know, managing our patients, uh, if we have a patient in, a, in an, occupying an inpatient acute bed for an extended period of time where they, they, they don't need to be there any longer, and we have someone waiting in the ED, you know, we, we have to make sure that we're able to move those patients so we can continue to, to properly uh, build for those patients in the right setting. And although we were doing some virtual beds in the ED, it's not something that we can do for everything that we have. So, I mean, it's, it, it's just a, a improving the flow overall will certainly improve our ability to ensure that we're capturing all of our... And finally, one more, um, to a bit, kind of a bigger picture, is there something like this that gives you, Luis, as the operations um, guru of the entire system? Uh, an idea of where everyone is right now, or yeah. is this something that? Eventually, eventually we will have that. We'll have that visibility within the bed board within our system once we go live with Epic. On top of this, which is this is going to be very granular, and will provide very specific information that the transfer center will leverage to move patients across all sites. We'll be able to look at that and, you know, and, and, and merge it with what's our staffing look like, how many beds are available, are there male or female concerns that we need to look at, are there infection control issues that we need to look at, I mean, there's isolation, things of that nature. So that will provide them all that, all that visibility. On top of that, we will also have reports that uh, there's actually through Epic an operations dashboard 
that tells me exactly, and this is something that I've been working with the design team, to lay out the way and what I feel is important, what I want to see every single morning. When I walk in, I want to see this dashboard, and it gives me a sense of what's happening across the entire system, just like there's one for the CMO and there's one for the CEO. And so that, so between all these tools, we'll have great visibility. That's, I think, one of the great benefits of this is that we'll have much more clarity and greater visibility across everything that's happening. Right. Trustee Banerjee. It's good to see the um, the shifts because I remember when it was Monday through Friday only and mm -hmm. one shift. So is that now that you have two shifts on the on the weekdays and then one on the weekend? Is that enough um, with the surge and things you see, or do you see um, that being uh, the weekends being two shifts or maybe three shifts during the weekdays? I don't know. Yes, actually we we evaluated um, and we do see a gap because of the current um, uh, staffing of the transfer center. We think ideally a 24-7 um, as we move into the future would certainly increase the number of uh, transfers because we have a consistent standard process for everyone to engage in every day. So yes, I think it would certainly increase, it would certainly help with uh, our, our throughput. Yes, I feel confident that will be a benefit. Yes. Dr. Jack, uh, I just uh, want to uh, again recognize the team because you know uh, they have we have been uh, waking up and sleeping every day, every night, and breathing. <laughs> and uh, you know I text them on Sunday at seven and you know midnight on Saturday, and they always respond and they plan. And uh, the, the, the problem that we are really facing, and I'm glad you brought up that paper because it's looking at the system problem. When we are in, uh, in Surge Red here and we have admitted patient in the ED and we have staffed and empty beds in our system, that's a problem. And this is where the uh, transfer uh, center help us really in, in, uh, in removing these patients. And the problem with throughput, it's not a linear process. In other words, if I uh, empty two beds in the ED right now, I can really clear 15 beds in the waiting room because then I can see the patients who are waiting to be seen and there is no place to see them. So the process really is not linear. And we have uh, external factors that are really working uh, against us that we are addressing strategically, not only internally in terms of operation, you know, talking about afterload, Dr. Bouquet, you know, we are looking into opportunities outside, but as uh, Sheila uh, was saying, our three, uh, like, biggest category really is on a conservatorship of patients who uh, have uh, no, no decision capacity. Number two is really homelessness, and number three uh, is dialysis and behavioral health issues. So uh, this number of problems in the patients trying to move them, transfer their care to the outside the hospital where they don't need acute care is really beyond uh, the ability of our really hospitalists and our nurses, and they have to take care of all the rest of the patients. So these, these are really the, the, the issues that really we are, we are uh, looking at in, in our throughput. Now the transfer center, we are expanding it not only to work as an element in this decongesting process, but also in helping Alameda Hospital and San Leandro in, in delivering tertiary care, which is available in our system. So if a patient needs 
an interventional procedure. We like to bring them here, do the interventional procedure, and take them to their beds. And this is starting to happen in the transfer center. Thank you, Dr. Jay. Trustee Hernandez. Um, thank you so much for this. And I'm going to ask kind of a two-part question. I'm, I'm thinking a little bit more uh, in an emergency situation. This seems like an absolutely essential way that we will be able to be responsive given that we can see on the uh, dashboard where are the patients and where do they need to go. I'm curious how well you feel you're getting cooperation from our external colleagues, uh, whether it's Sutter or Stanford or UCSF. How, how much cooperation are you getting when you're really struggling for a patient's unique situation? I can answer that. Um, um, in our community across the board, everyone's pretty much in the same situation we are right now. Mm -hmm. So everybody has ED borders as frequently as we do. And they may have as many. They have a little probably more aggressiveness in their throughput mm -hmm. um, than we are capable of. Mm -hmm. So yes, when we do have a surge, um, I have made efforts to try to capture opportunities from our local communities, but they're pretty much in the same status we are, unfortunately. So even if I have a patient that's a higher level of care need, there's still a wait list just even to get those patients there and when they have a need, that is something we cannot provide at Highland. So it's, it's, it's you know, it's heart-wrenching yeah. when we know the patients need this and, you know, I'm calling constantly and, and they would say, we're in the, you know, we're in the same boat you are. So, thank you. That's a short of it. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Fennell. Uh, well, I just wondered if, if Susan or, or Sheila would, would speak to you. Um, there's, you know, there's, there's not a, um, a uniformity around the patients we serve and the resources, the access to those resources to some of that is driven by uh, payer. Um, um, considerations yeah. and otherwise, like if they're a Kaiser member or if they are health pack where we have to have a contract or mm -hmm. if they're Medi-Cal and we're working on what their, what their coverage uh, uh, enables and allows to. So I don't know if you, if you could speak to whether that, that confounds what you're able to do as well from a... From a uh, it absolutely is. Uh, there's no question. And, and that, was the, that was what I was going to comment, that the payer is, is certainly a barrier in particular with transfers. So if, if for example, if it is um, less so if it's a health pack member because we can um, use our letter of agreement or single case agreements to transfer patients to UCSF or Stanford. However, um, patients that um, have no payer and uh, potentially with Medi-Cal, then we have to come up with creative ways to convince uh, UCSF or Stanford to accept the patient. And sometimes that means, you know, a take-back agreement uh, with that facility or getting our financial counselors to quickly work on the case and begin the process and to convince them we are, that we are qualifying the patient. And just to follow up, do, do you have an emergency module for EPIC so that in the event of an earthquake, we're seeing a lot of trauma, different kinds of, you know, patients that everybody's trying to deal with. How, how does that get embedded into EPIC, or is it done through that? If, if I understand your question correctly, and actually I was going to speak to you when you said it earlier, a lot of what, what, what Sapphire will, or EPIC will offer to us is, is the, the greater visibility to, um, to coordinate our activities or see what's actually happening so we can do something about it. But that's also still constrained by the practical realities of what's around us. Okay. So even in, 
moments of you know emergency or austerity or whatever, um, uh, I don't. I would be careful about giving the uh, perception that that this will allow us to deal with those situations, uh, uh, you know, more reliably. It really is also going to uh, be uh, contingent on what's, what's again, going on now the practical else. realities. Yeah, okay. yeah. I don't know if you all would you would uh, answer differently or add anything to that, but I yes. think that's what I'd be careful about. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So, um, no, I just wanted to know if there was any considerations and um, or, or if. The expansion of the transfer center continues, and what, what are the transportation implications? How do we, we have our um, our non-acute ambulance service right? Is that just yes. increases? Yes, yes, it will. And I believe that um, we we would have capacity. So Royal um, currently we have you know emergent uh, transportation, and we have non-emergent. So yeah. you know I can say honestly since we've. Um, uh, contracted with Royal, uh, the relationship has gone uh, very well, very successful. We have uh, uh, operational meetings um, at least uh, two to three months. We review, review their metrics, and um, so far we are not seeing barriers with transportation. I think initially there were some concerns around critical care transport, but um, they have uh, addressed you know some of the concerns there on site at um, our facilities to address any concerns they have. But I know that um, ambulance was raised as a concern for the uh, transport during the transfer center process, but based on our findings and the data, um, I did not see that as a significant issue. And, and I have not either, no. and I, I've done a random survey. And Royal um, has been very committed to keeping within our parameters of yes. our contract, which has been very helpful with our ED patients. Yes. Uh, and also, I'd, I'd like to I, I'd like to kind of preempt uh, Sheila here, but uh, one of the challenges I'd, I'd like for you to maybe speak to some of the challenges that, that as, a, as it relates to our ability to even when we identify a patient that's eligible for transfer, getting them over to the next facility. What are some of the barriers and challenges that we face that we face when we deal with? Because I know that's one of the things that Dr. Marzouk and it comes up at the Alameda MEC regularly, where they're saying, you know, that the physician receives a call at. 9 a.m., but the patient doesn't show up till 7 p.m. And so, you know, there's, there's complexities and challenges that deal with that. And so, what are we doing to, su to support that activity in the work that's currently ongoing? Okay, let's, let's talk yeah, about that. so I, I do an audit of, of those kind of cases. Um, what frequently happens that I've seen, which I did in the last month working with Dr. Tornabeni, um, we found, I looked at the ambulance at the time we ordered, actually ordered the ambulance to the time the patient was leaving, and that was not uh, an issue. Um, I ruled that out. What I do have is um, many, uh, often, there are requests for additional services that cannot be done at one, maybe at one of the other campuses that we need to keep the patient housed at our facility. So if it was the patient was going to Alameda, needed an MRI, or decided in the conversation of the physician to physician that an MRI was indicated. Getting an MRI at the Highland campus is a, a very long process. So those kind of requests do delay a transfer. The other things that delay transfers are just, we, I, our counterparts are very willing to take, accept patients, but they don't necessarily have a bed at the time of the presentation. <coughs> So that may delay as well of getting the patient over to the other campus because I'm waiting for a discharge room to be cleaned before I can activate the and initiate the transfer. 
So those are the, the two, those are the things I'm seeing. Um, I have not been tracking that routinely every month, but now I'm looking at that regularly with our transfers. So I'm, I'm looking at the causes of those delays and seeing if we can mitigate those. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that presentation and dialogue. Yes. I'll end with standard work. Sheila, thank you. Great, great presentation, great dialogue. If you will uh, rank list your top concerns vis-a-vis -vis the transfer center for, for this committee, that would be great. So I would say number one, um, a review of the subspecialties to increase our potential to transfer uh, viable transfers. I, I'm the subspecialties that are lacking at Alameda and San Leandro, I would say that that needs to, to be re-reviewed for some kind of um, proposal or resolution. Okay. Um, filling the, the gaps of the transfer center right now, I don't think we're fully staffed. So number one is, is, is kind of, I guess, the protocols and procedures. Number two is actual demand. The demand personal. power, yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then um, for me, the, the third would be the standardization of the acuity, the standardization across the campuses where we have the mismatch. What service, what we consider a level of care at the Highland campus is different at the Alameda and San Leandro campus. And it definitely impacts transfer of candidates of who is appropriate to go. If the bed, it's about safety for um, assigning the correct bed at the other campus. Do you feel resourced to navigate these challenges? Save number two, which said that you didn't have resources. <laughs> 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 well, yes, it's a partial. Okay. Excellent. Thank you for that presentation. And as I close, uh, Susan's not going to like me for doing this, but Susan and I have worked very closely together for 11 years. Um, GI Services utilizes um, uh, the transfer center probably at a greater proportion to others. We stopped interventional endoscopy services back here in October of 2011, so we've transferred everything out intermittently and uh, subsequently. And uh, Susan, I, I, and I, I don't throw this term out very much, so this is why she's going to be uncomfortable. This is a rock star, if we've ever seen a rock star. Uh, she, she, she makes magic happen. She navigates that complexity. I just say, Susan, I need this done at CPMC or ECSF, and it's almost like magic how it happens. But I know it's not magic because I know she's, she's killing herself to get it done. So, you know, Susan, you know what I think of you, and I, I wanted to say it in public. So she, you, you're the heart of this transfer center. Please don't leave. <laughs> Thank you very much. So, so with that, uh, we will close out item F. Thank you. We're at an 11-minute time check. We'll probably have to speed through a couple of items. We'll, we'll go to item G, which is the Patient Safety and Regulatory Affairs. This begins on page 163. Um, I, I, I will make note uh, for the public microphone that, that we have had broad and deep and robust discussion about many of our quality and safety issues uh, in closed session uh, uh, due to concerns for uh, and why we use closed sessions for uh, where the organization might be pushed at legal risk or there's, there's uh, patient safety or HIPAA compliance issues. But that being said, I want to put uh, on our discussion that uh, at the last QPSC, we reviewed that there were 24 RCAs in 2018 and that's from April 24th through December 31st. Ten of those RCAs happened at Highland, one at Alameda Hospital, one at San Leandro, and 11 happened at John George. As of today's report uh, submitted by the QUAL team, uh, we've had in calendar 2019 nine RCAs. Uh, uh, seven of them are at John George. Five were classified as sexual assault events and two deaths related to care at John George. 
and I do know for the public microphone that the CMS is, is here currently on a validation survey. Um, uh, this, there are extraordinary challenges in navigating these kinds of concerns. And one, one thing, and I'm going to ask our COO to, to make commentary on this, is what, what I do want to appreciate on our journey is something that I teach our house staff is no data point exists in a vacuum. No data point exists in a vacuum. So, so it, it is the trends which, 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 should, which should illuminate uh, the direction in which we're going. And, and uh, identifying these things are part of the real work of what we're trying to do here in the Quality Committee. And, and uh, the goal was never to break down the te a team and to support our teams in this extraordinarily, extraordinarily difficult work. And, and uh, uh, John George is having some challenges right now, and I, and I want to make, uh, open up uh, the microphone uh, to our CEO. Uh, who appropriately so is very protective of his teams, and appropriately so, like I said. And, I, I, and I'd like our CEO to make some comment, please. Thank you, sir. So, I, I, and again, I, I really appreciate the, the opportunity and the dialogue that uh, that is, is ongoing as it relates to all the work that's happening out at John George. We all recognize, and we, are, you know, we, we all agree that uh, there's always continuous room for improvement. Uh, you know, continuous improvement is something that we live by and that we focus on as an organization. One of the things that I wanted to, to just, you know, provide additional context to is the fact that, you know, John George over the last several years has, has gone through a tremendous amount of change, not only in personnel, but also in just processes, procedures, and workflows. Uh, most recently, as you may recall, last, you know, the entire portion of last year was fully consumed by addressing a lot of the issues related to ligature uh, risks across the organization, which is a big focus for not only Joint Commission, but also CMS. And so the, the, you know, the, the facility staff had to uh, very quickly adapt to a whole new uh, risk assessment model uh, where they implemented the Columbia Suicide Risk Scale, and they had to train the entire workforce with that. They had to revamp all of their workflows uh, related to how they're screening and assessing patients coming into the psychiatric emergency services department. Uh, they they really had a, a tremendous amount of, of activity related to surveyors and, and others uh, from, from regulatory agencies that have essentially moved in uh, to John George. Uh, but we are seeing a, a tremendous change in the demographic of the patients that are being served at John George. Uh, we're seeing the sicker of the sick. And you know that, that, that population, uh, which we know is under-resourced across the nation, uh, but John George staff have really embraced that challenge. They continue to work with that challenge. They operate at times where the census that is higher than what we would consider to be or we would want to see uh, be the norm, but uh, they're still continuing to try and manage that to, to help minimize the, the impact of the community hospitals. So I just, I just want to continue to communicate on behalf of the team that, that there is a tremendous amount of work going on with the staff. Uh, we're, we're continuing to communicate with them, engage them, listen to their concerns, support them, provide them education as necessary. And that engagement and that work has been evident and has been noticed and, and uh, commented on by our surveyors that have been at the facility over the last several days from CMS. Uh, we're speaking very highly of the leadership team, of our not only medical leadership, but also our administrative leadership. 
uh, and our quality team, who is integral to the part uh, to the work that's happening at the facility. And so, it, you know, it's, it's good to hear that uh, the surveyors themselves are are able to, through the process of discussions and their invest and their their, their survey, uh, they're identifying and and validating. Uh, the amazing work that's happening every single day at John George, recognizing the many challenges that they face. And so with that, I, I, I want to just, I really want to commend the team for the amazing work that they do every single day. And uh, oftentimes when we see these incidents that occur, uh, we all agree and we all live by the principle that one is too many. But when we see these numbers, we can't, uh, we, we, we want to make sure that we're looking at it from a broader perspective to say, what can we learn from this? How can we prevent this from happening again? But in the process, we're looking at how can we also care for our teams and our staff and make sure that they feel supported and that they feel that they have everything they need to continue to provide exceptional care. And so I want to commend them for their work, commend our quality team, our providers. We've, we, we have the, the, the best and greatest engagement uh, that I have seen uh, since I've been here for the last three years, currently with that leadership that we have in place, physicians and staff as well. So I want to thank them for that, and I want to thank you all for the support you give us and you give them, uh, but I want to make it clear that uh, their, their efforts are not going unnoticed. Thank you, Mr. Fonseca. Trustees, uh, Trustee Jensen. I have a general question about the report itself. Um, under systems learning in two places, and I've seen this before, um, there's a dis uh, a suggestion that there's a cognitive bias. And what exactly is, can someone explain to me what cognitive bias, um, I guess that would be Canberra, uh, and how that impacts um, these types of events? Yes, I'm very pleased that you picked And Dr. Sena, we always appreciate your comments, but you'll look at that clock there, so we're at T minus five minutes till the end of this meeting. So um, basically, in busy environments with complex patients, we don't always have time to exercise refined decision-making. So we rely on patterns to expedite our decision-making. That works well until we fall prey to a cognitive bias. Example, as an internist, I pick up a patient from the ED. I don't reevaluate the diagnosis the ED made. I jump, this is called premature closure. So someone who has shortness of breath is labeled as having a COPD flare in the ED. Microphone there. Oh. Uh, and so as an internist, um, when I pick up the patient, if I don't reevaluate that diagnosis, even in the face of new data, that's positive bias. So, um, yeah, so I won't say too much more in the presentation, but as a human factors principle of our RCA, we are spending more time thinking. And also another thing I just point out that is really relevant for our population is we have a lot of vulnerable populations. Uh, their health literacy, there may be language barriers, their race, their ethnicity, and we think, how might this have affected our decision making so we become more sensitive and insightful about our own biases. And especially at, at when there's developmental or, or cognitive issues, right? But, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. Trustees, any further comments on item G, patient safety and regulatory affairs? It hasn't been made. Thank you for that. With that, we will close item G. We will move to item H. This is actually a written standing report. It's the TNM dashboard. I know Dr. Hussein stays up late at night typing this out. It's a very well written report. It is there for our consumption. Um, I'm going to hold off on any further questions because it is a standing report and given our time. I will make comment that we are uh, uh, moving into April uh, next month, obviously. Uh, and to remind our board, we need to vote, uh, remind this committee and the board, in June we need to make vote 
on a new set of true north measures. So I've asked Dr. Hussein through April, May, and June, uh, taking a little bit of time each, to give us a little bit of a construct for proposals. So if you'll reach out with Dr. J to your respective CAOs and see how that dashboard might be being built. And as a second thing, I, I, I haven't yet made the formal request to both our CEO, our board president, and our, and our ad hoc uh, retreat uh, chair. Uh, the board will be having a retreat on Friday, April 26 uh, here. And while finance is, is a very important focus for that, I'm going to request a little bit of a carve out to talk about quality and perhaps a true north measurement discussion. It might give us a little bit of break from finance. Uh, so that might be an opportunity that we'll be in contact with. So with that, we will close out item uh, G, sorry, H. We move to item I, which is the planning calendar. Uh, this is a, a fixed item here. So what is important for uh, next month, we've requested that translation uh, services, moving towards uh, discussing things of equity, and it's a nice pairing with the ambulatory SBU, uh, the TNM forecast, as we've, we've said with, uh, with Dr. Hussein. And we've previously had a discussion about uh, the patient affairs uh, uh, question, maybe putting a patient at some board level thing. Uh, we previously asked Dr. J to give us a, a discussion on the patient affairs landscape. That is set for May, so just a two more on that. Any, any other requests for anything on the planning calendar team? Excellent. With that, we would close out item A uh, and go to item J, council. Sure. So the closed session, the committee considered the credential reports for each of the two medical staff and approved the credentials for those individuals meeting the requirements set for by the medical staff and recommended by the medical staff. Now, committee at the committee to move further actions. Thank you, uh, Councilor Pena. With that, we close item J.